0: This is Business Impact, a podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, and each episode, I'll be joined by world-renowned faculty from across the College of Business, as well as international industry leaders who offer us insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. Welcome back to another edition of Business Impact as we head into the summer. Now, a lot of shows, radio, television, you will hear the phrase widely anticipated. And really, it may not be that anticipated really when you get into the content. But this next uh, edition and this next half an hour of more of conversation is widely anticipated because we've had lots of people requesting it, lots of people with endless questions, lots of people asking things like, will my job be safe? And of course, the subject is generative artificial intelligence, generative AI. And here on the UCD Business School staff, we are very lucky that we have somebody who has been studying and researching in this area, not just for a few years. This is not just the latest modish thing, but for many decades. And that's Michael O'Neill, who is a full professor and director of UCD's Natural Computing Research and Applications Group. And he has one particularly distinguishing research, Mark, that he did a PhD thesis on AI almost 30 years ago. So he has been tracking this area long before ChatGPT, Bard or any of the other platforms came along. So he is the man to talk to. So we hope it'll be an interesting conversation. I think a lot of people have questions. A lot of people at dinner parties are probably a little bit BSing the whole area, may not know that much. And want to now catch up with somebody who has been immersed in this area for such a long time. So, Michael, you're very well. Uh, welcome along to the conversation. Oh, thank you. Emma. De- delighted to be here. Talk about the right man in the right place. And um, what has it been like for you for in recent months, obviously, since J- GPT came onto the market and all the surrounding hullabaloo? I- I'd say your, your working life and your research life has been kind of turned upside down to some degree.
1: Oh, I think it's fair to say. I mean, it's, it's probably a day hasn't passed this year without um, a large language model or chat GPT coming up in conversation or, you know, in just casual conversation or in the research lab or whatever. It's it's yeah, it's very topical.
0: And were you surprised um, at the way it kind of was announced that it kind of slipped out almost? Um, this is obviously a company called OpenAI. They got into bed with Microsoft and the two of them have unveiled this product, chat GPT. Lots of people were surprised to think it came out of the blue. But I, I presume you're going to tell me that this has been this kind of work has been going on for a long time. And those in the know saw it coming.
1: Yes. You know, there's a fundamental technology underneath the, the, the likes of chat GPT, which is uh, the idea of a language model and particularly what's called a large language model. Um, and those large language models come out of a field of research. Uh, Going back to when I did my PhD, we talked about neural networks and connectionists. It's very much based on now what the the relabeling of that is deep learning. So quite sophisticated uh, models that are inspired by human brains. So the technology has been there uh, since, you know, uh, at least the 70s, um, if not before then uh, in the last century. So (laughs) this has been coming a long time, but I think it's fair to say that uh, what we've seen in, in recent months has been very impressive. So, you know, there's the underlying um, technology for ChatGPT is is a thing called GPT, the Generative pre trained Transformer. So that pretty much came about in 2017. It was a kind of a paper, seminal paper from Google Brains team. It's gone through various versions, GPT, GPT-2, 3, 3.5, 4. So originally that the, the ChatGPT thing came out, so that was what well, that was around uh, November December last year, and that was like based on GPT three point five. But I think what things got really interesting was when um, GPT four came out. Basically, the version of Chat GPT that's behind the paywall, as it were, is that version. It's the GPT four version, um, and that seems to have made a quite a substantial leap in terms of the coherence of the text that's generated from that model over previous models. So. It's been, uh, I suppose a, a rapid acceleration from 2017 to where we are now, I think that's fair to say.
0: But all those um, years ago when you did your original um, piece of research on this area, di- did you expect it to be have, have come this far? Like has it kind of uh, surpassed what you thought they would do, or do you think it's actually a bit behind where the predictions were? where, where like where do you sort of track uh, the AI field itself? like is, is it further on that you would have expected?
1: No, I don't think it is. I, they, I, I'm surprised at how coherent the, these tools are. But I will caution that and say, you know, there are a number of fundamental limitations, uh, read flaws to to that technology. Um, so there's a lot of hype around the technology, and I think we often the its capability is overestimated. So we might talk about that a bit. But
0: yeah, sure. Well, let, let's get into it. Let's get uh, let's get a look at some of the definitions. And a lot of people listening will say, look, I know vaguely what. A chatbot is. Uh, lots of people would have dealt with them if they've got a technical problem. Uh, they need customer support, et cetera. So, how does this this entity, this chatbot or chat platform or chat box or whatever phrase you want to use, how does it respond to these prompts, or how does how does it know what it knows? If you want to put it like that,
1: it doesn't know what it knows.
0: <laughs> OK, <laughs> so, how does it take in what it's told? And maybe that's a better way of putting it. <laughs> right. So we've all heard
1: of chat GPT. OK, so there's probably a number of components to that. And and actually... Despite the name of the company, OpenAI, we actually don't know uh, about the internals of of ChatGPT itself because that hasn't been released. So, you know, unlike other models before, there might have been open source and so on. But in this case, we don't know. So we don't know what the training data is. We don't know what the model is. So we have some hints. There was a technical report that was released by OpenAI around uh, GPT-4, which gives us some clues. We know that it's been trained on a lot of data that's been harvested from the internet, from all sorts of sources, but we don't know what that data is. Um, so it's all the good and the bad and the ugly that's, that's out on the internet. So these large language models need to be trained on all this natural language data that exists, okay? So, you know, part of the reason why this technology has advanced so rapidly in, in, in the recent years is that there's just so much data, natural language data that's available out in the wild that a model like this can be trained on. okay? But then the model itself, kind of at the core, you have what's called the language model, the large language model. And then in the case of ChatGPT, sitting on top of that language model, there's also some clever engineering. right? So OpenAI have, have basically built uh, what they call guardrails on top of uh, the output of the language model itself. Um, to try and steer it so that it might be more more coherent, might be less biased and so on. And also, there's this other layer called um, a reinforcement learning through human feedback layer. So basically, when OpenAI released ChatGPT in its original form, everyone who interacted with it, they were collecting all the interactions with that, presumably... And they were, you are also able to kind of give a thumbs up and a thumbs down, right? So you could you could say if what the prompt the the response you received was good or bad, effectively, right? So that's used for this reinforcement learning layer that sits on top of the language model. But again, we don't know the details around all this, right? So um, just from that sk- broad sketch that that OpenAI have given us,
0: and I suppose yeah. um, the the thing that fascinates me, obviously, you know, machines have been, have been able to reproduce content for you know, decades really, that's not the big breakthrough. But what the big breakthrough here is is that it can generate its own content. So it can actually produce new sentences, right? They may be, you know, made out of previous sentences as you pointed out, and that has been trained to do so. But I suppose the breakthrough is that it, it can produce it, it can produce its own content. It it can generate new content. Maybe it's from parts of existing content. That's the new element here, isn't it? Not just written content, but images and drawings and graphics and music potentially. And I don't know, poetry. (laughs) Is that where the big breakthrough is in your mind? Is that what makes this particular iteration of AI kind of so interesting?
1: You know, there's lots of different deep learning models out there. Right. So ChatGPT is one. It's based on this large language model and these different models have different capabilities, as you say. So some can generate uh, graphical art. Some can create text like ChatGPT, uh, audio, etc. Right. So there's a there's basically a whole ecosystem of these models out there. So, you know, ChatGPT is just one in the crowd in the case of those natural language models right, that produce the text like ChatGPT. The coherence of the text is, is really impressive. It does seem like, on the surface, that that the text that's being generated could have been generated by a human. But we have to kind of face the reality check here, okay? So, effectively, what we have is just a, a, a next-word predictor, okay, here. Mm-hmm. So, the, what these technologies do is... Um, They're basically reading the prompt. So you enter a prompt. So if you've ever used ChatGPT, you kind of have this chatbot interface. You basically can enter some text, right? So you could ask a question or ask it to to generate some text based on a particular topic, maybe generate a slide deck based on a topic or some notes or something. Um, So you give it a prompt and basically it reads in this prompt. It then kind of consumes that prompt, puts it through its black box network and outputs then text words, basically tokens. You might think of the tokens then as words that it then generates in response to the prompt. And it's basically trying to predict what the next word should be that follows every single word that's generated. okay so given the prompt, what's the next word that should appear? Given that word that's generated, what's the next word? Given that word, what's the next word? And so on. okay so how it's doing that is effectively looking at, you might think about as effectively a statistical model, some, some associations that might exist between words. So um, because, it, because it has all this natural language on the internet and so much data out there about natural language, it starts to model kind of what words are more likely to co-occur with other words, other similar words. OK, so if you start talking about animals and pets, then it's going to have built up in its model uh, an association with words like dog and cat, maybe hamster, or goldfish or whatever, okay? Um, so it then kind of recalls those words in response to that context of uh, pets, for example.
0: Sorry to interrupt you, but what, what I suppose it, the question I would have is if it can do that, I understand how it can do that when it, the sentence is... The cast sat on the mat or whatever, right? Something you know, uh, some certain rock and pop lyrics of the years haven't been much better. So you know, it wouldn't be too hard on it from that point of view. But how does it do it at a much higher level? Like it, somebody said, it can generate you no know, leaving cert paper. It can produce an academic peer review journal article effectively. And um, like it's it's not just going the man walked down the street. It it's doing at a really high level. So what 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 what's allowing it to do that? I suppose is the. A fascinating element to me.
1: Well, it is and it isn't. <laughs> so, um, so, OK, effectively, right, um, there's a hell of a lot of language, the hell of a lot of data out on the Internet. And this is OK. So there's kind of, as I mentioned earlier, there's, there's a number of kind of fundamental flaws uh, with this technology. Now, this you, you could think of this as kind of a strength and also simultaneously a flaw. So this type of technology is really good these deep nets are really good at learning the data that's been presented to them. Okay, so they can absorb so much data and they can model it quite accurately and then are able to kind of reproduce that data quite faithfully. So um, there is this classic problem in machine learning, right? Uh, It's kind of an experimental design flaw that we call the leaky data problem. And this is where you train some machine learning or AI technology on data, and then you evaluate the performance of that model on the same data that you've trained it on, okay? So in that sense, um, it's not surprising if you give, you know, if you have someone who's really good at rote learning, you know, they've they've got a photographic memory and they can just um, basically regurgitate what they've seen in a book, okay, you can kind of think about the large language model in that way. So on the internet, there's a hell of a lot of For example, um, computer code that say uh, first years in computer science programs have published um, out on the on on the Internet. They've shared that information. There's lots of essays about uh, different topics. There's lots of exam papers. So effectively, for a lot of these tests, it's quite likely that the large language models have actually been trained on the data That is part of those tests. So in one sense, it's already seen kind of the props, right? Now, as I said, we don't know exactly what the data is within, say, the likes of chat GPT. We don't know what the training data is. And this is part of the problem, right? If you approach this, you know, as I try to do as a scientist, um, it's really hard to evaluate how good these models are because it's very hard to actually design if you like that test set to kind of say look here are problems that or here's data here's language here's sources that these models haven't seen yet so we have to kind of somehow hypothesize that you know here's some tests here's some test prompts that we think that are just outside the scope of what might have been, it might have been trained on
0: i think we should uh, come up with our own chat bot called chat NWP next word predictor. Uh, I like, I like that as a short label for what's going on here. I suppose the other question that arises is obviously, you know, people will say, well, this is going to be a massive uh, increased use of computing power. There's, there's whether we think it's brilliant or hyped up or whatever, whatever your personal view on it is, there is going to be a, a massive need for, for data resources, for computing power for dare I say, energy to power all this. And one company that's already stealing some headlines is NVIDIA, the big US chip maker that does um, a lot of uh, graphical-based um, chips and so on. That's now heading towards to being a trillion-dollar company as we record this conversation. So is it just going to change the tech industry just in terms of who's supplying in and where resources are generated from? That, that That's kind of a an unspoken-about part of this story at this stage, isn't it?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think that I'm 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 not surprised at Nvidia's stock price going through the roof. Um, you know, uh, basically they they produce. The majority of, of certainly uh, the the GPUs, the graphics processing units that that these large language models run on. Uh, well, certainly uh, you know the research labs and so on around the world. Unless you're creating bespoke hardware like in te- like tensor processing units that Google might have, the in, in Nvidia basically are the source of the majority of these of the underlying hardware that that powers uh, that technology. And and to get GPUs to get the high end GPUs they're a bit like hens' teeth at the moment they're very hard uh, to get your hands on. In order to actually run the models in any reasonable amount of time, um, you need these uh, GPUs because what we didn't say was like kind of the you know the scale we talk about large language models they are really large. Um, so it, like Chat GPT or GPT four, um, which Chat GPT the paywall version is based on. We don't actually know how big it is, but it's estimated to have about one trillion parameters. So if you think about it, right, if you think about it, if it's trying to be some sort of model of the human brain... A parameter is equivalent to a connection in the brain. So it's like it's got a brain with a trillion connections in it. The previous versions, like GPT-3, had 175, 170, 175 billion parameters, right? So in um, <laughs> so, no, other connections, you know, the brain connections. There's,
0: there's there. times in the morning when I wake up, I don't feel I have a single parameter. So yeah, <laughs> um, uh, the, the human brain at times is, is uh, out of its look here at, at, on alien territory. Can I just bring you around to the conversation that the scary, more creepy part of all of this which is where this is going to go. Obviously, it's early stage debate. Uh, Regulation is at a kind of a frontier uh, period. You've got people like Elon Musk saying this could destroy people. You've got Eric Schmidt of Google or ex-Google saying, you know, this could literally kill people, you know, kill thousands of people, this technology. Uh, Other people are saying it's fantastic and it's going to cure diseases and it's going to have great health outcomes and so on. So, So you can take your pick of which uh, world you you have more sympathy with or which you think is more likely. What's your view of where this can go over, say, the next five or 10 years, this this part of the AI landscape? Um, and are you on the kind of like, we're all doomed and it's going to wipe us out sort of Terminator style? Or are you more uh, looking at this more benevolently and saying, no, this actually will settle down and actually probably all make our lives a bit easier, etc. So we're, where, and I'm drawing out a spectrum that might not be a fair one, but whereabouts would you put yourself Uh,
1: I'd be on the sober end of that spectrum. Um, I I think there's a hell of a lot of hype. Um, I think, you know, Okay, look, let's let's think about this in context. Right. You know, in the case of um, a company like OpenAI uh, and and there are many others. Right. So you've got Google, Meta, Facebook and so on uh, working in the space in the case of OpenAI, um, you have Microsoft basically bankrolling this GPT project, okay? So they have put in um, over $11 billion of investment into the team behind uh, ChatGPT. And, you know, that's equivalent. You know, to put that in context, right, that's, that's the equivalent of the budget of the Irish state in 2013, okay? So as in those 11 billion euro. If a company puts that much of investment into a technology, they're going to expect return on that investment, OK? So any sign of utility is going to be jumped upon. And certainly we can see, you know, with Chat GPT-3.5, and particularly GPT-4, that there has been, uh, there is utility there. There's certainly a tool that, that, that can be used, um, but with caution, and I'll talk about that. I think those are some of why we need to be really cautious about that. But yeah, if, if a company invests that much money into in, into a technology and it starts to see um, if it starts to see a signal, it could be useful. It's going to talk about it, right? And and, and it's going to want to sell it. And 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 that's effectively what, what they're doing. So I I I would I I don't buy into all this hype about uh, general intelligence, the super intelligence, and so on, and the singularity. I think we're a long way off from that and and it's because of the fundamental flaws that exist with this technology I mean, are you afraid of uh, an automatic text predictor? You know, you know, you know, the old SMS uh, next letter or next word
0: predictors. Yeah.
1: Effectively, that's what you got here, right? It's an autocomplete tool.
0: Is this like a juiced up Wikipedia? Is that what you're saying?
1: <laughs> you know, it's a juiced up autocomplete tool. And, and are, okay. are you afraid an autocomplete tool is going to take over the world? <laughs> I don't think so. Um, so there's a hell of a lot um, that we need to learn about intelligence, what is intelligence and how to actually realize that in an artificial way, in a computer system and hardware way, we, we just don't I'm know I,
0: From Michael, from your understanding of the, the, the dystopian side of it, I mean, I'm not asking you to speak for Elon Musk and all the rest of it, but what do you understand the other argument to be? Like, why, why should we be worried when these people say if this gets into the wrong hands or you know, autocratic leaders get their hands on this, you know, or or this could kill millions of people. Leaving out the kind of James Cameron Terminator stuff, what what, what do these people suggest could happen? And just that I want to know, even though I know you're telling me that it won't happen, but just give me a sense of what could go wrong.
1: You know, it's basically, you have an intelligence that somehow becomes equivalent and starts to surpass human intelligence and does so at some sort of exponential rate, And that it, you know, that then it achieves some sort of self-awareness, that it can somehow guide itself and determine what it should be doing. And that then, given its superiority of intelligence, and if it had the capability to then physically manipulate the world, then, you know, it could determine that for the benefit of humans, that you know, it needs to annihilate them or something.
0: You know, it's. <laughs> I like your new Hollywood
1: script. <laughs> it's total sci-fi. Look, I think it's to be honest, Emmett, I think, like in serious, seriously, like I, I think it's, it's a, it's a, it's a distraction from the real harms that are occurring and that can occur right now with this technology in particular, with, with the likes of chat GPT and large language models. So it's, it doesn't it probably doesn't serve us well to talk or focus about that. Um, I think it is firmly in the realm of Hollywood and science fiction.
0: Yeah, I suppose there's also going to be a, a counter industry. And what I mean by that is obviously we saw the Irish Times being the victim of a AI hoax there um, uh, quite recently. We won't get into the details on that, but I mean, it did happen. So obviously you're going to have companies trying to counter AI technologies, people that will be looking to spot it, identify use of it. So there will be kind of a, a kind of a counter-influence up there and, and people will be almost making money and the financial gain on the other side, which is trying to counter the effects pointed out, kind of like anti-plagiarism tools we use here at university level. There will be a whole uh, clatter of companies that will be almost anti-AI trying to find ways to, to to kind of equip us to spot it and identify it and, and uh, squeeze it out of the wrong environments, if you want to call it that. So that, that's kind of probably uh, something we've yet to hear too much about.
1: Well, I think, you know, even going back to kind of the research lab and so on, there's there's a whole area which you call like adversarial AI. And this is where researchers are, are you know, they try and break the technology effectively, right? So, if you know, you're trying to stress test it. OK, so ChatGPT, it's a large language model. It's based on these these deep learning, this deep learning technology, which basically form of these artificial brains, artificial neural networks. So there's similar technology that's used in vision, similar deep learning technology that's used in vision systems. So for example, in autonomous vehicles, right? And uh, So there's kind of two areas that deep learning has been really effective at. So one is vision, the other is natural language processing. So in the vision space, you now have uh, these deep learning nets that can recognize, you know, there's the kind of the classic thing, train the deep net on lots of images of cats and dogs, and then given a a picture it hasn't seen before, it can then identify that the picture contains a cat or the picture contains a dog or whatever it is, right? It can detect objects and images based on having been trained on lots and lots of images that are labeled with objects. So that kind of technology might exist within an autonomous vehicle. It might be part of the vision system, that then detects if there's another car in front of the vehicle, that there's a cyclist or a pedestrian, that it might register road traffic signs, right? So you could have, and you have adversarial AI researchers who have done this. So researchers have taken a stop sign and they've modified a few pixels, a few of the kind of the the the, the, the a few a little tiny region of that stop sign. And to you and I, if we saw that stop sign, you know, it's a big red stop sign with white STOP letters on it. Um, you might see like a little black dot. It might look like a bit of black sticky tape or something on it. OK. But to you and I, if we see that sign, it's still a stop sign. OK. What researchers have shown is that these deep learning uh, technologies just they just don't understand the stop sign. Right. So what they then see with those addition to the black dots, suddenly the stop sign might turn into a speed limit sign. <laughs> That's a problem, isn't it? (laughs) That is a problem. And why does that happen, Emmett? It happens because these deep nets and the large language models, they just do not understand. They do not understand the prompts that are being given, given to them. They don't understand the inputs. They don't understand the images. They don't understand the text. Not only that, they do not understand what they're generating.
0: Yeah, so they're not, this is what we have to keep pointing out. They're not conscious, which is very important,
1: right? They have no... What we would call model of the world, they're not connected to the world in any way.
0: Or as we'd say on the streets of Dublin, they've no cop on. <laughs> they've no cop on at all. <laughs> okay. And this is why this is why personally
1: I'm not afraid of these things, right? Um, in in the sense of the AGI uh, doomsday scenario. So, okay, I've been around AI for a long time. my, my PhD was in generative AI, it's a different form of, of generative AI, it's actually inspired by evolution, it's probably for another day's conversation. But what I can tell you is AI is a highly multidisciplinary field if you take it as a field of research okay so it's drawing on so many different di- disciplines ranging from philosophy to to uh, cognitive psychology to computer science and statistics and, and linguistics computational linguistics so in order to effectively as researchers in AI you know part of what we're trying to do is actually try and understand what is intelligence and maybe create artificial forms of intelligence in order to do that we have to perform interdisciplinary research, we have to bring these different fields together. And what we know is if we if we listen to researchers from these other communities talking about this type of large language model. So, for example, in the case of linguists. So we have Emily Bender and the University of Washington and colleagues. So she's written a number of papers in this space. And, and what the linguists are telling us is that you know the, the, the data that these large language models are trained on is basically a whole load of expressions, right? It's lots of text, but it does not actually codify any of the intent associated with those expressions. So in other words, when you and I have a conversation, or if, if you have a toddler and you're trying to train a toddler to use a spoon, you know, to scoop up some food. So that you have just pulverized some carrot for them. This is gonna be their first solid food. And you're you're getting them to, to to put this to hold the spoon, to manipulate the spoon and to put it into the into the carrots and scoop it up into their mouth, right? You as the parent are directly engaging with joint shared attention on a particular task. And you might be vocalizing, saying, you know, this is a spoon, spoon, spoon. And that's carrot. That's a bowl. And, and the toddler is basically starting to build up associations between actions and objects and, 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 and language. OK, and, and that happens over days, months, weeks and years and so on. But it's that joint attention. A lot of research thinks that the physical embodiments, the multi-modality of that, having that multi-sensory environment is actually required to extract what we would call understanding or meaning from the raw underlying language. So when you start to say spoon, right, that actual physical interaction of the joint shared attention is required. So linguists tell us this, right? They tell us that the, the data that the models are trained on right now just don't contain intent. And therefore, from their perspective, from many of those researchers' perspective, it's it's pretty much impossible for the large language model to actually extract meaning and therefore understanding. Yeah.
0: And one of the other interesting parts, is, I suppose, is a financial one. But like, if you look at these Hollywood um, scriptwriters that are going on strike and sort of leading the charge against uh, AI, they're making the point that if our material is to be regurgitated via a chat platform, we want to be paid. <laughs> That's our material. You, you know, some uh, large language modeler may have fed it into um, this new platform, but sorry, it's copyrighted. And it's, so that, that piece is going to be interesting because we... We saw the same when Google started, um, you know, obviously taking material from the traditional media that they got uh, understandably upset. So that whole piece is going to be another one to watch as well. I suppose we're all getting used to all these. These questions are are fresh and new to us, you know. In in terms of the labor force then, um, Michael, I know you're not an occupational psychologist or a labor market economist, etc. So this might be a bit outside your, your ambit. But. We do hear a lot of people saying certain roles will be made superfluous essentially by the advent of these chat platforms. Obviously, they can do routine things. They can presumably, and and sorry to the accountants listing, but they can possibly draw up a basic balance sheet. Um, They can do probably basic journalistic reporting at a certain level. They can possibly teach. They can possibly, you know, there's a whole range of things they will be able to do because they can produce content. So so what's your view on the possible job displacement issue where 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 do you sit on that one
1: This technology as I say it's kind of like an advanced autocomplete tool So in my view if you're to use this technology responsibly you have to have a human in the loop Okay so you know you you, you don't just press auto complete and and you know on a bunch of code and you just run the code you deploy it out into production No way right so you need trained people you need trained programmers software developers Uh, The same with uh, a piece of graphical art, the same with um, a piece of text uh, for an article, a news article, whatever. You know, you're going to need human experts to actually read and edit and change and and, uh, make sure that the text is correct. So, you know, if you think about this, right, you have an autocomplete tool. So it's predicting what the next word should be. There's no guarantee that the next word that it predicts to be to be generated is is correct that the sentences that are generated could be complete misinformation they could be alternative facts right they could just be completely wrong
0: (laughs) they might even run for the white house (laughs) yeah so
1: look i absolutely right i think it's 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 probably useful to think about this technology as being you know another productivity tool that will um reduce the burden on on people and will perhaps uh, reduce the number of roles in certain s- circumstances, but you will still require that human supervision and and monitoring and uh, and so on in order to get this to get this uh, to use the technology responsibly. Um, otherwise, you know, you, it's just going to be chaos.
0: <laughs> You're going to yeah. Have, I suppose uh, so It's probably most, probably so. a lot less a lot less reporters and more editors. If you look at the journalism world, uh, watching out for yeah. what it produces. <laughs> Well, what what do yeah. you say to the argument though that that this is very early stage, that that it will get better? And there's a network effect working here. You know, the more millions and billions of people use these tools, they will perfect uh, these yeah. sort of um, these mistakes and errors and fake news, as you say, it will, will get eliminated down as the system works. I mean, it, what do you think of that argument that this is very early stage and within ten years, this this thing, this chat platform, will look? better and will perform better because of the network effect of the amount of people using it.
1: No, I don't buy it. Given the fundamental flaws that exist with the models itself, if these models don't understand what we're asking of them, if they don't understand what they're generating, okay, then then you need a human to basically do the understanding. Um, So what that means is you need, okay, what you would need is researchers in AI to come up with a language model that's equivalent to the human language model. And until that time, okay, and that requires the language model to actually have the ability of understanding. Um, and until that time, you need a reliable language model, i.e., a human, <laughs> to, to sit on top of the large language model, the artificial intelligence, as it were. Um, and we're a long way off in it in terms of um, actually creating a language model that contains understanding. You know, as someone who, who, you know, as a professor in business analytics, right, I can see the utility of this technology. It definitely is a productivity tool. As there's a a famous quote from a statistician George Box, who says that all models are wrong, but some are useful, right? And certainly in this case, we have a model that is useful, um, but is useful if it's supervised, right, by humans.
0: Now, listen. Whether I like it, you like it, or where it's going, it's here. And people are interested and management, managers in particular are interested. And it's it's something that UCD Business School in itself is looking to really focus in on. Uh, what can you tell us about your own department, your own unit? What's coming down the tracks in terms of kind of making people who aren't technologists by origin of training, but want to know more about AI or, or can see it having, a, as you say, a utility in their business? Where do you see that going? Because I know that you're looking at various courses and, and possible options in, in that area.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously we have, you know, definitely so, you know, part of the the day job, as it were, you know, it certainly there's the research group and, and our research in AI. Um, but also there's the educational side is obviously a big part of, of what we do here in, in, in the universities. So you know, we have a very successful program right now—the Masters in Business Analytics. Um, it's, it's probably the most popular program down here in the Smurfit School. So we have about 140 students on that every year. The last number of years, there's, you know, for every every seat in the course, there's probably 10 applicants for that for that seat. And um, it's you know, on that program, we're basically trying to bring uh, the learnings from uh, the likes of AI, machine learning into the classroom and educate these students about you know, basically to demystify the technology, help them understand how these things work, what their limitations are, and then how they can be successfully leveraged within an organization in such a way that's ethical, right, uh, that that adheres to regulations, and that can be effective. Um, so that's something that we do here um, on, on the Master in Business Analytics. But obviously, and as part of that, I'd say there is AI and machine learning in that program. It's part of one of the fundamental technologies um, in that's used in analytics and business analytics. Uh, but certainly you're right. You know, AI is, is such a big thing right now. There's a big demand for, for maybe specialist courses in that and particularly for managers. So one thing that we've been developing and we're hoping to launch is with executive education is a professional diploma in artificial intelligence and business analytics. And that's really for managers. It's it's to um, basically, help managers demystify the technology, understand um, how and when um, you know you could use uh, machine learning and AI and analytics within an organisation. Think about what the regulatory environment is and what it will look like. Like we have the new um, EU AI Act, uh, which is likely to to be coming forward. That's going through the parliament at the moment. Um, so, kind of raising awareness, kind of around the regulatory environment, uh, the ethical environment, and um, the limitations and capabilities of technology, and and how to build teams that can use that technology effectively. So, so yeah, it's it's an exciting time in that space, Emmett.
0: Yeah, and I, I like what this conversation has done because it has sort of, um, it's decompressing everyone and uh, not depressing them, decompressing them in the sense of uh, just puncturing the balloon a little bit. Because the last few weeks, a lot of people have been running around with their hair on fire, <laughs> and figuratively speaking about the technology. And what you're essentially saying is it is a useful professional tool. It will establish itself as a professional tool, but it is ultimately a word predictor that has, you know, that's what it does. It's a predictive um, word a system that it just needs to be maybe just be a little bit more skeptical of some of the headlines you see in this area so i think with your expertise you you've really brought that out uh, throughout this conversation so listen enjoy the summer and enjoy uh, playing around with these various tools and see where they go next i said the next five or ten years are going to be fascinating in generative ai whatever happens and michael o'neill thanks for joining us on business impact
1: oh thank you it's been a pleasure
0: Now, if you enjoyed this week's episode of the UCD Business Impact Podcast, please subscribe to episodes on Apple Podcast or Spotify. We cover a broad range of topics with insights from business leaders around the world. So there's sure to be something there for everyone. I'd like to thank our production team of Beth Gormley and Mike Liffey. They work tirelessly in the background, sourcing interviewees, editing, promoting episodes and everything in between. I've been your host, Emmett Oliver. We hope you can join us next time on UCD Business Impact.